Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chitheads. My guest today is Christine Caldwell. Christine is the founder of and professor emeritus in the somatic counseling program at Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado, where she taught coursework in somatic counseling theory and skills, clinical neuroscience, research, and diversity issues. Her work began 40 years ago with studies in anthropology, dance therapy, body work, and gestalt therapy, and has developed into innovations in the field of body-centered psychotherapy. She calls her work the moving cycle. This system goes beyond the limitations of therapy and emphasizes lifelong personal and social evolution through trusting and following body states. The moving cycle spotlights natural play, early physical imprinting, bodily authority, and the transformational effect of fully sequenced movement processes. She has taught at the University of Maryland, George Washington University, Concordia, Seoul Women's University, Southwestern College, Pacifica, and Santa Barbara Graduate Institute, and trains, teaches, and lectures internationally. She has published over 30 articles and chapters, and her books include Getting Our Bodies Back, Getting in Touch, The Body and Depression, and Bodyfulness, which is uh, her latest book and which we're going to talk a little bit about today. And I should also add that uh, Christine is also a core faculty member of Embodied Philosophy's Mind-Body Therapy Program, and we're very honored to have her uh, and be collaborating with her on that project. So hello, Christine. Hi, Jacob. <laughs> Good uh, to see you. Good to see you as well. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today about this um, interesting topic of bodyfulness that you've written a beautiful book about that I've had the pleasure of reading over the past few days. And um, so just to get started, let's just jump right into it. I do want to talk a little bit about the story of you know your life and your work, but let's start off with bodyfulness. So what is bodyfulness? And, and I know that you contrast it in your book with the concept of mindfulness, which obviously is very familiar uh, to many people nowadays. It's an incredibly popular term, perhaps almost too popular. Um, yes, so, exactly. so what is bodyfulness and why did you elect to choose that term over something you know, like mindfulness, for example? Yeah, it's it, this is probably the the central reason why I decided to try to popularize the word bodyfulness. I don't think I invented the word, uh, but uh, certainly this is the first book or article that's uh, talking about it. And it started, as many things do with me, uh, with a kind of irritation with the word mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, as you noted, uh, the word mindfulness is very popular. It was really a big deal at my university. Uh, I was reading a lot of the research about mindfulness, which was very uh, exciting and promising. But when I would delve into the research on mindfulness, what I noticed was uh, from paper to paper or research study to research study, people were defining the word differently. Mm. And uh, in some cases, quite differently. And uh, they were also using body practices as a way to achieve mindfulness. And I thought, well, is it really, is, is being awake a mental phenomenon? And of course, for me, the answer came back, no, it's not. I mean, certainly mental phenomenon are included in this, but it felt to me that the 
word was actually used inappropriately and that really what was going on was something called bodyfulness. And I also wanted to create a kind of an extension from the word embodiment because certainly in the somatic disciplines, uh, the word embodiment is used quite a bit. And again, it's kind of a little bit muddy in terms of how people use it and what they mean by it. And as a geeky academic, I wanted to kind of get things a little more crisp and uh, uh, sort of play with the research on that. So uh, I see embodiment as a, a state of opening up to the the current lived experience of your body so that there's a feeling of attentiveness to the body. And yet that feels like it's just a start. That's just a start, a beginning. And that a, the word bodyfulness can express more than just embodiment. So uh, the word bodyfulness can really take us to the idea of what happens when you start with embodiment and then you look at it as both a, a physical, a psychological, but also a contemplative practice that goes beyond that so that you're looking, you're working in and through the body uh, from a quality of not only awakeness, but of inquiry and also a, a sense of non-judgmentalism and also non-analysis. So I get really interested, for instance, in a kind of wordless state of awakeness in the body that we don't have to translate into verbal, uh, a verbal explanation for what we're doing, but just uh, the lived experience of the body as it is and not needing to kind of overlay this... Uh, what sometimes is called a bullying effect of uh, verbal language. Yeah. So uh, that's a lot of where I wanted to play uh, when I started writing the book, Bodyfulness. So that um, that what you just remarked upon with the 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 need to overlay or the kind of compulsion or seeming um, command to um, or imperative to overlay one's experience with some sort of narrativizing. Um, that, mm -hmm. you know, that makes me think of kind of more traditional therapeutic environments where, where it's like, mm -hmm. okay, well, what are you feeling? Can you express that in words? I mean, I, in my own therapeutic experience, I remember many times where I was having feelings, but to the, it felt almost oppressive to be, to be told I yeah. needed to narrativize it or to explain it yeah. in some way. And so is that a little bit of what you're getting to is this kind of, um, uh, therapeutic um, uh, method whereby the 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 words aren't necessarily necessary but what what would be the alternative if you're not speaking them is mm -hmm. it just about being present with them or what is that about yeah this is a really important question so the one of the issues and you know I'm been a clinical neuroscience teacher for a long time, so I can talk about it in terms of particularly the left and right hemispheres of the brain. And a lot of what we know from a research perspective is really important in therapy is being able to go into the right hemisphere and kind of noodle around in there with images and sounds and 
uh, emotions and memories and all that and body states uh, that uh, are really more processed in the right hemisphere, whereas the left, of course, is interested in verbalization and creating a logical narrative, creating a, a coherent storyline, that kind of a thing. And uh, for instance, uh, uh, people like Dan Siegel have talked about how the left hemisphere can bully the right hemisphere. Mm. And so it's the idea that we want to help someone be able to work with a right hemisphere dominant state and not feel that you have to exit the right hemisphere to create a narrative about it from the left hemisphere perspective. Because then what that does is it takes you out of that state. And this state where you can just be with your physical reality uh, is so powerful. And so... But you're right to talk about how do you make that usable? How do you work with it? Because it's not enough just to hang out there. You have to know how to work with it, right? And so as a body-centered psychotherapist, that's on one level what I've spent my whole career doing is really trying to find out how to help make these very direct nonverbal states useful for people in terms of healing, creativity, uh, contemplative practice, etc. And so, you know, I'd want to say, though, that it is important to talk about our experience. I don't want to get rid of talking about our experience because it's actually quite helpful and useful. What I'm really interested in doing is having an ability to postpone the verbal narrative long enough so that there's this rich experience, this rich direct experience that can sequence on its own. It can create its own, what I call body narrative. And so I'm looking for body narratives, coherent body narratives, uh, before you start constructing a verbal narrative about that. And uh, with the idea that you can't really talk about an experience that you haven't fully had. Uh, a lot of times we'll start to have, let's say, an emotional experience or a physical experience, and then we'll go, oh, this is about this. This is, you know, and you you plop on the verbal narrative, and then that closes it down. So we have to be able to really stay with the body narrative, the body experience long enough that this really rich material comes up that can be worked with directly. Mm. And so uh, we do that a couple of different ways. And certainly, you know, what I'll say now is not particularly new in the body psychotherapy field and the dance therapy field. These ideas are pretty common. Uh, so just I'm an integrator at this point uh, to talk about it. But so one of the ways that we would work with that right hemisphere sort of direct experience of the body is to work with it in the relationship with, let's say, the therapist or the teacher or the artistic companion or the spiritual teacher. And so there's this uh, what we call a body to body relationship where the actually the right hemisphere of, I'm going to say therapist, 
the right hemisphere of the therapist talks directly to the right hemisphere of the client. And so there's these wordless exchanges that happen between the two bodies that can be very powerfully healing. And in fact, a lot of research has been showing this, that uh, a lot of the the clinical importance of the therapeutic relationship is actually in these nonverbal state exchanges between therapist and client, but also between partners, between spouses and partners, uh, particularly in long-term relationships. So the look on my face as you say something to me or the look, the, the gesture that I put to my chest when you are have a certain look on your face or that your posture changes, those kinds of um, nonverbal communicative exchanges are our first language system and are very reparative and very creative. So that's one way of, of working with it. Another way is to, again, think of um, that the body has stories it wants to tell that could be potentially quite different than the verbal narrative that we've laid on top of it. And so a lot of times what we'll do is work with emotion or sensation or breath or movement to help the body find, in a sense, what it's really feeling, what it's feeling down below uh, conscious awareness. And bringing up those states as movements, as sounds, as emotional expressions uh, without the need for words is very, very powerful and uh, very healing, very creative. Mm. So. Is that partly because, you know, the words can sometimes end up becoming a kind of defense mechanism that is actually evading what we're really experiencing? Yes, exactly. A lot of times the verbal narratives are stories that we've been taught to tell about ourselves uh, or stories that we've heard from others that we've absorbed. And certainly that's true on the body level, too. Our body absorbs culture and reflects culture as well. But the verbal overlay is oftentimes, I mean, Freud actually talked about it, you know, about rationalization and defense mechanisms and all these uh, projections. And he actually created a really nice list of ways in which you can verbally fool yourself and actually create a kind of alternate reality that uh, doesn't work for you. And so this idea is that you find this kind of bodily truth uh, that then can can reorient your your life so that you're living a more true uh, experience of yourself. Amazing. Okay, so let's get into the nitty gritty of bodyfulness. And um, in your book, you outline eight principles of bodyfulness. So let's just maybe move very briefly through them. Um, and um, so the first one is oscillation. Do you want to talk a little bit about oscillation? Yeah, this is one of my faves, my personal faves. Uh, That's why it's first. Uh, and probably, there you go, uh, probably because I'm a physics and biology geek. So the uh, principle that you can see both in physics and biology, but let's take biology, 
is that all life oscillates. And so you can see it in our heart beating, our gut with peristalsis, our lungs with breathing, our brains with waving. Uh, the body is always oscillating. Some uh, older body psychotherapists called it vibrating or pulsating. But uh, sort of from a, a biological standpoint, it might be called oscillation. So there's always a lot of very physical oscillations going on in the body. And what I get really interested in is creating systems of work that actually leverage what's happening in the biological processes. And so when we look at then how, since the body is oscillating all the time, uh, how can we cooperate with that? How can we do it consciously so that we can learn about really basic phenomenon that are stored in our breathing, our heartbeat, our, our gut, uh, our brains, and uh, really allow those experiences, those oscillatory experiences to increase a kind of coherence uh, in our bodies and create well, for instance, in the brain, oscillations are really information car carriers. Uh, and uh, so by, by really paying attention to any number of oscillatory phenomenon, we can really play in a real sophisticated way. So what would be an example of, um, or what would be perhaps be a symptom of not aligning with this sort of oscillatory aspect of our bodies? <laughs> Well, uh, a good one would be what happens to your breathing when you're anxious. Mm -hmm. And so in, uh, when you're in a state of anxiety, you have a tendency to over inhale and not exhale enough. And so you're unbalancing that particular oscillation. And so you're going, <gasps> and you're sucking in a lot of oxygen. And what happens then is your brain reads that you have too much oxygen. And then it's you start to actually panic because yeah. your blood gases are out of balance. And so a lot of times people actually make anxiety worse by unbalancing their breathing. And then their body gets alarmed. And then you that's where panic attacks can possibly get started. Mm. So that's a good sort of crisp example, but it's on an emotional level as well as a physical one. Okay. So uh, second principle is of balance, mm -hmm. um, which seems pretty self-explanatory, but do you want to make some mm -hmm. comments on that? Yeah. Well, uh, yes, it is. And uh, what I like about this word is that you can look at it at a lot of different levels. And so just on the basic physics of the body, the basic biology of the body, we are standing on two legs and we are always, when we're, when we're in the vertical, we're always balancing. We're always contracting flexor muscles and then extender muscles and then flex, extend, flex, extend in order to uh, keep ourselves upright. And so there's this idea of also, um, I, I was watching this one day because as I get into my late 60s, I've been, you know, you get all these exercises for seniors uh, and 
lot of them are about balance. And a lot of them are literally, how long can you stand on one leg? Um, how much can you uh, go off balance and find your balance again? Of course, they're trying to prove prevent falls, but this principle is really interesting. And so we take the kind of literal physical idea of balance and how does the body always renegotiate balance as you're moving around, as you're, you know, doing whatever in whatever relationship to gravity. And how does that physical balancing affect and relate to things like emotional balance. Mm. So the ability to feel that you can find a kind of equanimity in your emotional states because you're allowing yourself to say, okay, yes, I feel a little frightened. And uh, if I oscillate out, I can see that I'm okay. But yes, I'm a little frightened. And if I oscillate back out, I can see I'm okay. And so a lot of times, for instance, in therapy, uh, particularly, let's say, trauma-based therapy, one of the ideas is that you have one foot in the past and one foot in the present. Because in the past is where something got started. And in the present is where your safety and resources are. And so you you balance yourself across uh, the past and the present. Yeah. You balance yourself into feeling a feeling, but not letting the feeling take you away, mm. get you out of balance. Yeah. You, so we see again, the, the physical concept of balance relates to balance on lots of other uh, levels, emotional, cognitive, contemplative. I love that one about balance in time because, you know, we can totally see, you know, individuals in our lives or we ourselves at certain points being sort of imbalanced in the past or, you know, conversely, yeah. imbalanced into the future. It's sort of like you're really never truly being present because you're always, you know, running towards the next thing or you're stuck in a memory yeah. that you have. So that's a really, I feel like that's such a useful tool. Yeah, yeah, really good point. So feedback loops is number three. What's this one about? Yeah, this is the idea that the physical body, again, is highly networked to the point where it, it is perhaps useful but not accurate to talk about different systems of the body that do different things or different types of cells that do different things. One of the other realities there is these distinctions in the body in terms of, yes, there's a respiratory system and yes, there's a digestive system. But the reality is, is that these systems are not independent. They're highly interdependent uh, and they're always talking to each other. So uh, for instance, again, Dan Siegel has popularized this idea of what he calls neural integration. So that's how he, he defines, in a sense, health or mental health, particularly, as the idea that all it's not how many neurons you have or uh, not as much about how, who's talking the loudest, but are they talking to each other? And what we see is, is that health and well-being could be defined as this state of how well the different systems of the body talk to 
each other and mutually influence each other. Mm -hmm. So when the digestive system and the nervous system are really exchanging a lot of real-time data, you actually can regulate yourself much better than if that's not occurring. And certainly you see this principle a lot in uh, psychotherapy where like in Gestalt therapy, they talk about fragmented parts of the self that aren't talking to each other and that you're trying to re-own fragmented parts of the selves. And what that really means from that perspective is that it's integrated. The experience of one part of you is integrated into the experience of other parts of you. And probably one of our best examples of that is what we call the sensory motor loop. So sensation goes into the central nervous system, it gets processed in the central nervous system, and then it comes out as some kind of motor response or an action or a movement of some kind. And the, the, it creates a kind of continuous feedback loop so that the motion of our bodies in reaction to sensation always informs the next sensations that occur that then uh, do that. And so we see some really hefty feedback loops going on. That's one of them. There's also what's called a viscerolimbic feedback loop, which is from the gut to the, uh, the kind of mid centers of the brain, a lot of where emotions occur, for instance, and memories occur. So we see a huge hookup between the gut and uh, the middle parts of the brain, particularly the emotion and memory centers of the brain, so much so that we're actually calling the gut our second brain yeah. at this point. So very cool stuff. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I know you've talked about this a little bit with that one, but what are some or one or two other ways that you can, because I, th I feel like in, in, from one perspective, these things are just happening in a certain sense, mm -hmm. but then we're also obviously talking about ways in which we can participate in the feedback mm -hmm. looping process, uh, yes. for lack of a better term. Um, yeah. So what would, what would one, of the, one or two of those ways of participating be? Yeah, well, if we take the sensory motor feedback loop, we can see that if we enrich sensation, then we give the central nervous system more to work with so that it can then generate a motoric response that's more sophisticated and more really finely uh, tuned to what is actually happening. And then that fine, more finely tuned motoric response can enrich our, our sensory uh, experience. And so a lot of what we do in bodyfulness is to wake up to what's already happening even more uh, in more enriched detail so that we can allow the the information processing to be more enriched and strengthened also so that it goes back to that neural integration idea that uh, uh, whatever you, you know, keep doing gets easier. And so uh, we can live more consciously our various integration feedback feedback loops. Right. I see. Okay. So fourth, number four of our eight principles is energy converse, co conservation. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So tell me about this. This is one. a big one. Yeah, this is a big one. And one that doesn't get talked about a lot in, uh, for instance, uh, body psychotherapy or dance therapy. Uh, it's the idea that we see uh, in all of the systems of the body that, uh, and it's, it's in a sense, it's very Darwinian. Uh, you want to be able to expend the least amount of energy to get done what you need to do. And that's on a kind of organism level, like I don't want to run to something that I can walk to uh, because if I expend so much energy, uh, then I don't have it left over for something else I might need to do. That's the kind of historical Darwinian idea is that uh, for most of our evolution, we've had to conserve energy uh, very powerfully in order to survive. Of course, that principle gets a little hinky uh, in modern day when we see that there's we're dealing with overabundances in some cases, like an overabundance of food or something like that. But um, so, but you see this in all the systems of the body that, for instance, the brain is very uh, uh, an energy hog. It takes. It's like 5% of our body weight and it takes 20, 25% of our calories Wow. <clears throat> or 20, 25%. Yeah. And so the brain, the central nervous system is always looking for ways to conserve energy. And so it tries to shut things off mm. while it's doing something that's expensive. So for instance, consciousness is actually quite metabolically expensive. Uh, it takes a lot more energy to be awake than it does to be asleep. And I think that's a political statement, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I really think that that, uh, you know, from a sense of what we need to do to wake up to political realities is not take easy routes, just really energy conservation, simple answers uh, on a social level and a relational level, but we could talk about that another time maybe. No, I like that. But, we'll, we'll come back yeah, to that. Yeah, okay. So, uh, but the, for instance, uh, consciousness takes a lot of energy. And so uh, we actually, that's one of the reasons why we need to sleep is we need to conserve energy. Uh, but also if we have to pay attention to something that let's say is a potential danger. What happens is our central nervous system really gears up, sends a lot of resources like oxygen and blood up into the central nervous system, which then shunts a lot of resources to defending ourselves like blood to our face or our upper body to fight or blood to our lower body to flee. Uh, but what it does, what it has to do in order to do all that good stuff is it has to turn things off. So it will turn off digestion. It'll turn off, uh, reproductive processes, uh, and it'll turn off the immune system. Mm. So this is why stress makes you sick. This is why trauma makes you physically sick because of this energy conservation. And so uh, if you chronically are feeling frightened and that you need to defend yourself, you are chronically turning off 
your immune system, your digestive system, and your reproductive system, and to your the peril of your physical health over time. Wow. And so energy conservation is important. We need to do it, but we want to be able to watch out for uh, the cost of that and be very sort of judicious about how we do energy conservation. Mm. So it's probably safe to say that in our kind of sped up, hyper, you know, mm -hmm vigilant in terms of you know energy expending culture mm -hmm. that there is probably a lot of this going on right shutting off of various systems mm -hmm. yes and i believe also that this hyper vigilance and hyper arousal of modern developed country uh living is also uh, at least a partial explanation for why we have a tendency then to sort of take the opposite extreme and become couch potatoes, become sort of fall into our cell phones, fall into just watching TV, fall into a kind of overly sedentary lifestyle yeah. uh, because it's trying to find a balance. And uh, it would be nice if we could fill out the middle of that particular continuum. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, even myself, I know in times in my life when, especially when I'm working really hard, it happens, you know, for a certain period of time. And then it's like, okay, one day I literally can do nothing but sit on the couch and watch endless episodes of Netflix. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Exactly. And I think we've all been there and done that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and not to say there's anything wrong with that. I mean, you know, that's right. you're doing it right. Well, again, it's a, it's a, it's a balance, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So number five, we're, we're halfway through now. We are on now discipline, which of course, as you even mentioned in your book, people can be like, oh, discipline, that sounds kind of scary and um, arcane. So what, is, what does this mean and, and, and how does this play into this concept of bodyfulness? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually trying to uh, resurrect this word, uh, particularly in the psychotherapy uh, context, because I think we probably... Uh, don't uh, appreciate this enough in psychotherapeutic contexts. So uh, it's a well-understood word in uh, different contemplative and religious uh, practices. Every major religion, really, I would think any religion, has some sense of practices that require discipline and that and a lot of times that has to do with a commitment to exercising, literally a commitment to exercising, whether you're exercising your ability to pay attention in certain ways, like in meditation, or your ability to uh, be with certain emotional or contemplative states. Uh, this is the same understanding of discipline, let's say, that athletes have that you have to uh, athleticize uh, the muscles of your body, your cardiovascular system, et cetera. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll invoke again all the, the stuff from uh, AARP that I'm getting about being a senior. You know, they, they talk about use it or lose it. And so 
this idea of discipline is actually really crucial. And you can see that over and over again in the body, that the body requires uh, certain disciplines in order to maintain health and well-being. And so I really want to make sure that we don't feel that this is a pejorative, that uh, discipline isn't part of the process. And uh, particularly to kind of disentangle it from the idea of being disciplined, uh, as in uh, talking about uh, punishment or anything like that. Uh, I think it's very important to disentangle that and really look at it very carefully from a physical level of how happy the body gets uh, when it has different um, disciplined uh, practices that it engages in. Yeah, so do you think that um, part of the resistance to this or the, the discomfort that perhaps some people have with this in terms of I'll use the word medical environment in a very broad sense, mm -hmm. um, is mm -hmm. because we've been kind of enculturated to this idea of the quick fix prescription, whether it be receiving a pill. So it's a passive, I'm a passive recipient of that which mm -hmm. will heal me. You give me a yeah. pill, you give me the right therapeutic kind of you know encounter, whatever the case may be, and I don't actually have to do, I don't have to take ownership in any sort of particular way of my own process. I'm just going to let you heal me. Yes, I think this is a really important point you're making. And one of the downsides of modern Western culture. And in a sense, one of the results of modern Western culture, is, as you're saying this, is that it pacifies us. It literally creates a kind of passive uh, relationship to what happens to me. And uh, those of us who are psychotherapists know that when you feel that way on a psychological level, that my the experience I'm having isn't under my control, that there's nothing I can do or not do that relates to it, all that happens to me has to come from outside of me, is given to me or happens to me. Uh, this is a prescription for uh, mental illness. Mm. And so the, you know, a lot of psychologists call it uh, external locus of control. Uh, like you said, that, that external thing is a pill and I, I just passively take it. Uh, this is actually where I started to work with the concept of body, bodily authority. Uh, the idea that we claim a lot more authoritative knowledge of our body, then we can say, okay, I know best what my experience is, and I know best what I can do to, uh, to take care of it and work with it and heal it or play with it. And, um, I think uh, this is really a critical way that we understand how uh, modern Western society, that we have to have a lot of discipline to, to resist some of the uh, forces uh, that pacify us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, moving right along. Number six is change and challenge. So what is this about, Christine? Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the when I was first studying neuroscience, I got really uh, interested in this, and that is that uh, one of the 
in the back in the 1920s, a doctor named Edmund Jacobson uh, was working with the nervous system. He was a medical doctor. And uh, he noticed that the nervous system actually uh, stops paying attention to things that recur, and it only sharpens attention when things are novel. And so, you know, some you know, something happens over here, and I go, oh, what's that? Uh, that's a, you know, small example that the nervous system, again, trying to conserve energy, kind of gets quiet and goes on automatic when things are familiar and the same. And it only wakes up when there's some kind of change or novelty that occurs. This is probably why research is now showing that one of the ways to uh, prevent or uh, minimize cognitive decline in aging is by making sure that you have a lot of novelty in your life. And so they want you to learn new things, play Sudoku, learn how to tango, all this stuff. And that's because uh, you have to keep the, the system working and active mm. in order to keep the tone, the discipline, the balance, etc. And, um, the only way to do that, or one of the best ways to do that, is with novelty. And so in the system of education, for instance, what they're finding is that people learn optimally in a state of mild discomfort. Mm. So this is really interesting. Yeah. This is a, so the whole idea of discipline again, which is that if you're comfortable, if you're sitting on the couch and you're comfortable, that's great. You want to be able to do that, but you're not learning anything at that point. It's not about learning anything. In order to learn something, you actually have to really gather yourself up, open up, pay attention, and really uh, create that novelty. And so change, the basis of change is that we have to wake up and pay attention to something new or different uh, that we weren't paying attention to before. This is actually Freud first, really. He didn't talk about it, but when you look at his, what he did as practices, what he developed as practices, it was also always about this, about waking you up to something you weren't paying attention to before. And uh, so this relationship between novelty and change is very, very powerful. And it helps to really centralize it so that we can leverage it uh, as a contemplative practice, a therapeutic practice, an artistic practice. Well, yeah, this seems like a really important point to me because, and I don't know if you agree with me, but the it seems like, and we're moving, this is sort of a political question, but um, uh -huh. one of the features I feel like of public discourse today a little bit is that people have become uncomfortable with discomfort in a certain sense. And so, you know, many people, when they encounter someone whose position is different from theirs, rather than engage in the uncomfortable work of trying to tease it out and try to actually learn what the other person, where the other person is coming from, the tendency mm -hmm. is to kind of shut it out, you know, delete the friend from Facebook, for example, yeah. and kind of yeah. isolate yourselves in a sort of echo chamber of, of, of thought that won't make you uncomfortable and will just yeah. further support and perpetuate your own kind of what you've decided is sort of the core of your I don't know, identity when it comes to these ideas. Uh -huh. So I don't know yes. if that's something that connects with what we're talking about, but do you have any thoughts on that? 
Yes, I I actually really uh, enthusiastically agree with you on this one. I okay. think this is a really important point. And one of the ways we can look at it uh, from a social context or a relational context is if you could see a kind of continuum. And over on this end of this extreme of the continuum, we call it conflict avoidance. We avoid conflict at all costs. And then we have to surround ourselves with uh, people who only think the same, say the same, feel the same. And we don't then find the challenge that we need to grow and to be healthy, actually. And then on the other hand, you have um, uh, conflict seeking. Mm, And so there are some people that actually try to stir up, uh, like let's say if we're using the social environment, we could talk about conspiracy theories uh, uh, that are uh, and really dramatic let's even say fake news one of the one of the functions of fake news is to generate a kind of an exciting uh conflict seeking idea those jerks they're so blah blah and it uh, on either end of that spectrum what you're doing is you're trying to make your life more simple your life gets very either very uniformly gray over here <laughs> or very black and white here yeah. both of those very simplistic locations. And so again, we're conserving energy, but we're doing it in a way that doesn't have any middle ground Mm. that you're talking about where we're slightly uncomfortable. We're saying, could you tell me more about your political view? I don't get it. Uh, And you're tolerating um, something that creates discipline in you. It creates the integration. It creates the balance, et cetera. So I'm all for it. Yeah. Beautiful. I love, I love the way we've just, that you've just unpacked this idea um, in, in, in relation to all the things we're talking about. It's a really kind of of fresh way of looking at it. I love it. Um, So now we're going into contrast through novelty, which is a little bit what we're, we're speaking about. Am I right? Um, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So again, the, the, the about a hundred year old uh, idea is that we learn by contrast. And so we, we learn by the ability to create a kind of contrasting state to the one that we're in, which then wakes up the let's, you know, just to use the central nervous system at this point, but it's true throughout the whole body that the contrasting experience wakes us up and it opens us up also. So the brain becomes interested in like what's happening. Uh, have I seen this before? Have I experienced this before? Did what I, how I reacted to it work? So the brain gets real interested. And so the contrasting state really helps. This is also, by the way, true in the immune system. So the immune system works on this idea that, uh, you know, there's cells that are circulating, immune cells that are circulating around in the body all the time, that their only job is to say, oh, wait a minute, I I don't know that one. What what is that, that cell over there? Is it a friend or a foe? And should I get alarmed and call in the troops or should I just ignore it? And so uh, both chronic ignoring in the immune system and chronic calling in the troops in the immune system uh, is a definition of immune system disorders. And so this idea of the 
contrast is is really again it's powerfully in the body and our biology sits underneath and creates the architecture for our psychology yeah yeah okay so final uh final one of the eight principles of bodyfulness is associations and emotions will you tell us about that yeah, if uh, you'll forgive me for using another neuroscience reference here. Please. Uh, <laughs> the central nervous system is always comparing incoming sensation to uh, what it has may have experienced before. So an incoming sensation is actually routed to different locations in the brain depending on whether or not we Uh, think we have experienced it before and what we did with it before. And this is all, by the way, unconscious. It happens before you're even aware that you are feeling a sensation. And so the the sensation has already been kind of categorized uh, uh, before we ever wake up to it. So uh, in, in the brain, we actually have several what are called association centers. And what we know is that the more association centers incoming data is sent to, the richer an experience we have. And so uh, you'll see it sometimes when we are, let's say, sitting around, let's say, with your your brother or your sister, and you're saying, oh, remember that time when we were eight and five and you were wrestling with me in the living room and dad yelled and... Uh, I fell and hit my head and and then all of a sudden your you know your sibling says something else and then you talk about the quality of the light in the room or that you know your dad was making a cake and your cake fell or you know you're filling it out because your brain wants to pull in different uh different things and the richness of that experience is very important for neural integration and it's very important also to to allow us to have rich emotional lives. And so we can remember something and feel, again, the feelings of it and to call up those feelings into the present body is a very powerful and stabilizing experience. It's why we like to have memories and share memories. And so the, the process of association is actually really common in, in different psychotherapy fields. So, for instance, um, I, you know, I would ask a client what they're noticing, and the client would say, well, I notice my throat is tight. And then I would say, just stay with that for a minute. Just pay attention to it. What comes up when you notice your tight throat? And they would say, well, um, I hear a sound of, of like... Or I see an image of um, uh, a hand choking, or I feel I start to feel frightened. Those are all associative processes, and they're how good psychotherapy begins because you want to really work with those different associations. They're different for everybody, and you bring them up and you work with them because again, that helps you become more right hemisphere dominant. It pulls in resources from that half of your brain and allows you to work with uh, uh, a lot of different creative and reparative states. Mm -hmm. 
Excellent. Okay, so just to kind of um, uh, review the eight before we move on, they were oscillation, balance, feedback loops, energy conservation, discipline, change and challenge, contrast through novelty, and associations and emotions. And of course, there's much, much more in Christine's book, which all of you listening can uh, get mm -hmm. on Amazon. And so now, you know, we've been talking about this, Christine, and I just want to touch on them very briefly, which are the four aspects to the practice of bodyfulness. Uh, obviously, mm -hmm. like I said, I think they've all been coming up in various ways throughout the, as we've been unpacking the eight principles, but I just want to touch on them and, or give you an opportunity to just touch on them briefly. And they are breathing, sensing, moving, and relating. Um, so do you mm -hmm. want to talk a little bit about these before we move into some more political questions? <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay, I'll make it quick then because the politics is the fun part, right? <laughs> it can be at least. Yeah, uh, yeah so uh, one of the, again, the things that I, I get really interested in is that biology underlies and supports our psychology. It creates the architecture for it. And uh, breathing is very, has always been known to be uh, not only physically significant, if you don't do it after about five minutes, you die. That's very significant physically. But uh, people have always realized that it's emotionally significant that uh, when we hold our breath, we start to feel differently than if we breathe deeply uh, into an emotional experience, for instance. Breath work is used a lot to help regulate arousal and emotional uh, experience so that the emotion is felt and held, but not, uh, not it doesn't run away with you. Uh, and of course, breathing practices are used in any major contemplative tradition as a way to uh, wake up and, and to work with contemplative states. And so uh, breathing is pretty central as a discipline that we want to be able to have some relationship to. So in the book, I'm really telling people, you know, there's a lot of different breathing practices out there. Find ones that work for you. Have different ones that work for you in different circumstances. Don't get, you know, really rigid about just one. Really have a kind of a set that help you particularly also find different balance practices because we see, for instance, the balance of inhale to exhale as being really critical. So breathing, very central. Moving, again, very central. Uh, we could also use the word expressing because we see that, you know, I feel something and then it's actually important to express it from a psychological perspective. So the ability to express or to hold back an expression also is also very important. Uh, keeps us safe. It also keeps us socially intelligent to, you know, not yell at your boss kind of thing. <laughs> very good emotional intelligence. So the idea of in that sensory motor loop that we talked about before is that we're always moving. We're always moving in response to our experience and studying movement, uh, allowing movement to be a conscious practice uh, is very critical because it is so critical to our physical nature. Uh, one, the definition of life is movement, the beating heart, the waving brain, the 
pulsating lungs. And so movement is actually quite critical. So again, in the book, I really encourage all the readers to find some different movement practices. Again, various ones that really feel good in different circumstances from walking and hiking to yoga to I, uh, my particular big movement practice is dance. I take dance classes all the time. That one really, that's home for me uh, a lot. And so we all need uh, for bodyfulness, some kind of breathing practice, some kind of moving practice. And also we need a sensing practice. So the ability to turn my attention to um, sensations inside my body, but also sensations that are focused about the outside, my eyes and my ears, as well as my guts and things like that. So we want to have the ability to practice enriching sensation and being able to work with sensory processes, because this is the basic raw data that everything rests on is what's happening inside me, what's happening outside me, and then what do I do about it? And so having an, a rich sensory experience is really important. I remember reading a research uh, uh, study that once said that most uh, people in developed countries only pay attention to their bodies under three circumstances, sex, exercise, and pain. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's great. We like to do that in those three circumstances, but that's also a, a sort of an impoverished relationship to our body to only pay attention to under those three circumstances. Yeah. So in order for bodyfulness to occur, we need to really expand out of those three. And the fourth is relating. So I believe that any contemplative practice as well as therapeutic practice needs the ability to work with how I relate, how I relate to others, as well as how I relate to myself, but a lot of how I relate to others. Uh, we, for instance, now know that social intelligence is actually a greater predictor of a lot of life satisfaction, physical health, uh, longevity, uh, financial success, all kinds of things are related to our social intelligence. And the ability to relate to others, which is in danger of being lost in our highly technological world, is really critical. And so I actually think that it's not enough, for instance, to just sit on the cushion and meditate. It's actually not enough just to do a yoga pose. It's actually important that we get off the mat and relate and understand that there are relational practices that are also uh, really critical for our well-being and for the well-being of society. So to find relational practices as well is part of bodyfulness. Beautiful. All right, so I want to shift for the last portion of our conversation, which has been amazing thus far. I want to shift in, um, you know, not not too crazy, but a, a couple more <laughs> political uh, questions. And one is this interesting comment you made in your book. Um, you describe at one point that bodyfulness is activism at its most basic level. And so I just wanted to know what you meant by this and if you could unpack that for us. Yeah, so uh, as... I've always specialized in my career in movement and movement processes. And 
really a movement is an action. And I get very interested in what's the relation between relationship between the body's actions and what we understand as activism. And so activism means you're doing something about what you see and what you feel and what you believe and what you experience and what you want to change. Your activism is I commit to doing something. And so the, the idea of what do I do comes up a lot for all of us about what do I do with uh, particularly potentially very overwhelming large issues, let's say like climate emergency. And so this idea uh, of how do I understand that I'm not just moving for myself to, you know, get dressed in the morning and take a walk, but I'm also moving in ways that contribute to um, the resolution of climate emergencies or the resolution of, uh, of political uh, uh, political events that I feel alarmed about. Mm -hmm. And so activism is oftentimes uh, a tricky issue, and there are people that do their activism in ways that might not work for their own bodies, their own health and well-being, but also aren't effective in the world. And so we want to really understand activism in a very rich and nuanced and detailed way so that my body, the, the authority of my moving body, my very conscious, awake moving body, helps inform what kind of activism I do in the world. And I do believe that actually we are not in a state of well-being unless we are also social activists. And so I have a real complaint a lot of times about modern Western psychotherapy in that it's overly self-centered. It's centered on the self and the separate self and the self that is removed from social contexts. And we see that, in a sense, in the way that psychotherapy can be an actual oppressive force and to really reinforce uh, uh, social norms, unexamined biases and uh, uh, social conditions that actually oppress people. And so it's important that we understand that our psychological well-being and social well-being is interrelated, it's interdependent, it's networked, and therefore we have to be social activists as well as uh, personal activists. And that, that locates itself in our moving body mm. from our, the, the beginning of our moving body. Is it um, uh, so, so part of it? I feel like right is is this uh, ability to trace right the impact of of the social context on our experience of the body, um, uh, and and if it's not, it, what else is it besides that in terms of um, you know letting bodyfulness not be simply another way of just honing in on this compartmentalized you know um, thing. Um, mm -hmm. my embodiment, but actually something that is a sort of um, uh, a, a locus of understanding these intersecting mechanisms. 
Yeah, that's really well put because the the issue is is that the action or the activism is bi-directional. And so it's very important for me to study the impact of different social forces on my body, how my body feels, how I experience it, how I narrate stories about it, and uh, how I move my body is impacted by different social forces. And sometimes those forces are oppressive. And so a modern Western ther uh society tends to oppress the body in general. It tends to see it as a kind of lesser partner to the mind. The mind is pure and the body is weak and the body is dirty and all these things. And which probably just harkens back to our fear of death because we know that the body dies. Mm -hmm. And so it it's it, partly we want to understand how society impacts our moving body our sensing body, our relating body. And, but what we also want to do is to see how that sort of understanding and development of our own bodily authority, that uh, my body has rights, my body has dignity, my body, it, uh, it has an authority that can be a social contribution. Uh, I have to start standing up for my body in society and, and resist forces that are trying to, uh, as we said before, pacify it, yeah. uh, make it uh, a uh, just a consumer, uh, and uh, really understand what it means for me to also be a producer, be a, lead a productive life. Yeah. And part of being productive, and not to be afraid of the word productive, is to is to produce uh, social social well-being by how I move with uh, the different social forces. Hmm. I don't know. That's a little less. No, that was very beautifully put. Actually, yeah, beautiful. <laughs> so you know, we you offered a, a, a somewhat of a critique of um, psychotherapy in terms of <clears throat> a lack of addressing the the political component or the socio socio political context. <laughs> Um, but would you, do you have any thoughts on how an encounter with bodyfulness w could potentially shift forms of activism? So maybe perhaps seeing some limitations in activism as it's, as it's expressed at this moment that could use a little bit of the insight of, of what we've been talking about? Yeah, I think so. I think, let's say, if we go to some kind of a march or a... Uh, a public uh, gathering in which we do encounter people who feel differently than we do. I think one of the first uh, the first things we want to do is really do that encounter from a bodyful perspective. So the first thing is to sort of oscillate in and really get in touch with and hold my own bodily integrity. My body has a right to be here, to move the way it feels that can keep it safe and, and express uh, my experience that I have a right to have, but also that it can oscillate out and appreciate the physical rights and integrity and dignity of 
the bodies of people who feel differently than I do. Mm -hmm. And I think what that does is it allows us to create social discourse rather than uh, social uh, violence. Yeah, a screaming match. Um, there you go. There you go. Exactly. Yeah. Which, of course, doesn't help and solidifies a sense of isolation that actually isn't real. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, so what, you know, besides the things that we've been talking about just now, um, are, do you have any other thoughts on, on other large obstacles to bodyfulness in our culture? Yeah. Um, well, what I would say is that a lot of societies oppress the body in general and uh, make it less than or, um, um, as I was saying before, but I think we all have a tendency over time to absorb ideas about specific bodies that can that can reduce bodyfulness and create actual violence towards our bodies and the bodies of others. And so we make specific bodies wrong. Uh, we make the body of a person who has different skin color than ours wrong. We make their lips or their nose or their hair wrong. Uh, we make the way that they move wrong. And we tell stories about uh, these other bodies that are demeaning and degrading. And this, I think the, the, the first way that we really oppress other people and have biases towards other people is that we make their bodies wrong. And so I think this is so critical for us to understand that we all carry bias, we all carry body bias, uh, and it's incumbent on us as part of our bodyfulness practices to really uncover different body biases, whether it's about ageism or sexism or uh, homophobia, that these kinds of body biases are buried pretty deep, and we have a tendency to try to counteract some of the verbal and cognitive biases, but we really need to, to wake up to the body biases that we often carry and don't realize it. Yeah. And this is part of a, of a larger question um, or a larger concept of bodylessness that you unpacked in the book. Um, and um, of course I don't have the other features of it written down here, but perhaps you can recall um, let me see if I can bring it up very quickly, um, because it's a very interesting chapter. Bodylessness. Okay, here we are. <laughs> ignoring the body. Yeah, ignoring the body. Uh, mm -hmm. Seeing the body as an object or project. Hating the body, and then making specific bodies wrong, which is the one that you had just were talking about. Do you want to talk about maybe one other of these? Um, for features of this term bodylessness that you unpack? Yeah, uh, one of the ones, and I didn't coin this term, but just made use of it, is the body as project. And yeah. so we see ourselves as uh, uh, that, that the body is an improvement project. And so we have to go to the gym because we want to look uh, cut or, you know, six-pack abbed or whatever. Uh, you can see body as project in, in a lot of uh, communities like the yoga community or the dance communities. And, and this idea that there's um, a way that the body should look and operate that is uh, 
is in, uh, I think it was first term coined in a feminist theory about the body as a project. So the body is always needing to be uh, used rather than lived in such a way that uh, we, we appear better for others or that we feel a certain way and don't feel other ways. And so this can become, of course, really neurotic. I think we're all aware of people in our lives or even ourselves that can get really make ourselves pretty nuts about the body as a project. And we, of course, this is fed by consumer culture. And so we see the body as a commodity in consumer culture, that the body, uh, you know, the the amount of the billions of dollars we spend every year in the cosmetics industry and the plastic surgery industry is pretty appalling, actually, mm-hmm. in terms of how we, you know, we start hating our body uh, because it doesn't look the way we've been taught to think that it's supposed to look or it doesn't operate the way that we want it to operate. It's very controlling and it's very sort of top down, again, a kind of bullying of the natural states of the body and a a pushing away of uh, our direct experience and uh, experiences that we need to be a little more vulnerable to. So, for instance, the experience of aging, uh, the experience of uh, weight, uh, the experience of of, uh, our body's size, uh, the symmetry of the body, or the various abilities or disabilities that we carry in our body uh, are are very important to hold and care for rather than uh, make wrong. Yeah. So, I mean, I I feel like especially with aging, there's, you know, I feel like... it, there are some areas of our culture which have woken up to the kind of, you know, when it comes to the size variations of size of bodies, like there are kind of empowering narratives. But when it comes to aging, we don't really have any empowering narratives of aging. It's pretty much just like, you know, it's all downhill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, whereas and, and it seems like in, uh, you know, it sometimes makes me think about previous cultures that had more of a respect for the elder, right? They held this, like when you were, it was initiation into old age where you actually took on this new role and that was supported. Whereas now we don't seem to have that. It's like, as soon as people get older, it's sort of, they disappear. We put them in nursing homes and like, and they're no longer as represented in kind of the cultural mainstream on TV and movies and whatever. Um, so it's like we lack these sort of, you know, narratives of empowerment that would actually support our experience of aging. Yes, very well put. A very powerful example of how bodylessness can can occur and does occur. Yeah. yeah. So last question um, is on, you know, the last chapter of your book, which is enlightened um, on the topic of the enlightened body. So what Mm -hmm. is the enlightened body um, um, and uh, how do we get there? Yeah, well, uh, this sort of circles back to my irritation with the word mindfulness. And uh, it's the idea that it's actually... uh, we are really, um, our mind is something that our body does. Our body does like digestion, it does thinking, and it does breathing, and it does all these different things. So our mind is actually something that the body is doing. And so 
the idea of being awake for me is essentially a bodily experience. And to think of wakefulness as only being in the mind is really actually uh, ass backwards. And so we want to really go with how do we understand and promote a kind of wakefulness, a body wakefulness. And uh, that's what that last chapter is about or trying to address is what are the practices and the disciplines that allow us to wake up to our lived experience, our uh, the experience of being here right now in this physical uh, state. Uh, this is a this is us. You know, this is me. This is, and uh, to to understand wakefulness from the perspective of. Uh, attention into the direct experience of uh, our sensations, our moving body, our relating body, our breathing body, etc. That's sort of a, a, a short rendition of that last chapter and how, for me, it's so critical going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation, Christine. Are there any kind of loose threads based on the conversation we've had today that you'd like to touch on or any final thoughts? Huh. Um, I think you've been incredibly thorough and thoughtful, and I can't think of a thing. So awesome. I'm really happy with this as well. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a, it has been a pretty comprehensive conversation. We, I feel like we've made it through all the key points, and the book is, is really great. And I encourage everyone who is listening to um, get it at your local bookstore or on Amazon. It's, again, Bodyfulness. Somatic Practices for Presence, Empowerment, and Waking Up in This Life um, by my guest, Christine Caldwell. Christine, are there any events or anything coming up um, that you'd like to share in terms of workshops or oh. anything like that? Well, I'm certainly teaching in the Mind-Body Certificate Program, and that's pretty exciting. We have a new semester coming up in January. Uh, I, I'm going to be the keynote speaker at a dance therapy conference in Chicago in June, and I'll be talking about bodyfulness there. Uh, and also, if you want to go to my website to find out about different events and uh, trainings and things like that, you can go to themovingcycle.com. Themovingcycle.com. Okay, excellent. All right. Well, thank you, Christine. It's been such a pleasure. It has been a pleasure as well, Jacob. Thanks so much for your thoughtfulness and bodyfulness.